Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 23, Captives of Babylon. The ancient city of Haran sat at the crossroads of three once mighty kingdoms. To the southwest lay Damascus, the rebellious Aramean city-state long since crushed beneath the heel of Tiglath-Pileser III. To the west lay Carchemish, where the Hittite royal line had endured the loss of their new kingdom, only to fall to the armies of Sargon II. And far to the southeast, beyond the plains of the Middle Tigris, lay the ruins of Nineveh, blotted from the earth in retribution for Assyria's countless crimes. Due to its strategic location and the abundance of trade goods flowing through the region, Haran had long been the plaything of great powers. Captured by Shamshi Adad, claimed by Mitanni, burned by the Hittites, and retaken by Assyria during their Middle Kingdom. During the Long Dark Age, Haran had retained Assyrian ties and been rewarded with diminished burdens of taxation and military service. In 763 BC, anti Assyrian elements took power, but the free city they established only lasted until Sargon II's reconquest of the region in the late 8th century BC. Nearly a hundred years later, defying the vicissitudes of ages and empires, Haran was still strategically located, still strong, and most importantly, still Assyrian which is why the battered remnants of the Neo-Assyrian army, fleeing the destruction of their cities, fortresses, and garrisons, chose the ancient northern city as their rallying point. Senior among them was an Assyrian general and member of the royal family, who'd somehow managed to escape Nineveh's violent and bloody fall. In a bid to inspire his troops, the general took the name Ashur-Ubalit II, invoking the legend of the king who'd overthrown Mitanni domination to found the Middle Assyrian Empire. He also declared their northern refuge of Haran the new Assyrian capital. There may have even been some hope, among those gathered, of an eventual reconstitution of Assyrian power. Twice before, Assyria had been bested, with its dominion reduced to a single city, and twice it had reemerged stronger than ever. Who was to say that this time would be any different? Even as he may have nursed such hopes among his troops, Ashur-Ubalit II likely had few illusions of his own. He'd seen the enemy face-to-face at Nineveh, and knew that the Babylonians and Medes would stop at nothing short of Assyria's total destruction. 
The only true hope was an alliance, and the only alliance equal to the task was the one Assyria had fostered with the powerful southern kingdom of Egypt. Over fifty years had passed since Samtik I had been made pharaoh by Ashurbanipal, and over forty since he declared Egypt independent. Although Samtik had backed the losing side during the Assyrian Civil War, Elam had been Shamashum-Ukin's most prominent supporter, and paid the commensurate price in blood and treasure. Neo-Assyria had emerged from years of conflict diminished, and with little appetite for launching a fresh war against Egypt, particularly against Samtik's formidable army of Greek mercenaries. The ensuing stalemate had given the pharaoh the opportunity to concentrate his attention on domestic matters. Over the decades that followed, Samtik oversaw a return to Egyptian stability and prosperity. While continuing to grant most favored nation status to both Anatolian and mainland Greeks, Samtik also worked to reintegrate the Egyptian economy into that of the larger Mediterranean, which opened the country up to additional outside influences in the realms of both culture and trade. Conversely, Samtik's reign also saw a great renaissance in local traditions, with many Egyptian art forms hearkening back to the styles and techniques of the Middle and Old Kingdoms. The quality of reproduction was such that, even today, it's often hard to tell if a given statue or relief is from Samtik's era or something much, much older. It was only the growing power of the Chaldeans, Medes, and Scythians that drew Egypt's attention back to its near eastern frontier. As mentioned previously, Samtik had been forced to forestall a Scythian invasion in 631 BC. Fifteen years later, Babylonian encroachments had driven the Assyrian king Sinsharishkun to formally seek a military alliance. This wasn't as much of a reach as it might sound. After all, Samtik did have the Assyrians to thank for both driving the Kushites from Egypt and installing him on the throne. But it's more likely that the pharaoh relied less on sentiment and more on cold military calculus. If Assyria were to fall, how long before the Babylonians and Medes set their sights on the conquest of Egypt? They had to be stopped, now, before they formed their own alliance and... Wait, they just did? Well, damn. It's unclear what aid, if any, the Egyptians were able to render the Assyrians during the short span between the formation of the Babylonian Median Alliance and the destruction of Nineveh. But in 612 BC, as Ashurubalit rallied remaining Neo-Assyrian forces at Haran, he received a rare and welcome sight. A large body of Egyptian soldiers, dispatched by Samtik I, and tasked with helping the Assyrians hold their new northern capital. It wasn't long before joint Babylonian-Median forces arrived at the gates of Haran, and settled in to besiege the city. It's not clear whether Nabopolassar or Syaxares accompanied their armies, or delegated mop-up operations to their subordinates while they concentrated on securing other recently won territories. Either way, the defenders of Haran, under the able command of Ashurubalit II, managed to hold out for the next several years, much longer than Nineveh had lasted under similar circumstances. However, in 609 BC, the city finally fell. Haran's capture was apparently less sudden, less overwhelming, and less devastating than Nineveh's had been, and much of the Assyrian army, including Ashurubalit II, managed to escape in the general confusion and take refuge beyond the Euphrates. 
By the time word of Haran's fall reached the royal palace at Sais, a new pharaoh sat on the Egyptian throne. After 54 years of rule, Samtik I had finally died, and been succeeded by his son, Necho II, in 610 BC. His father must have impressed upon him that Egypt's future was linked with Assyria's survival, because, upon hearing the fate of Haran, the new pharaoh immediately set off northward at the head of a large army of Greek mercenaries. Following in the footsteps of his new kingdom forebears, Necho's forces marched along the well-trod ways of Horus, with the Egyptian fleet tracking their progress along the coast. When they reached the ancient Syrian city of Megiddo, the Egyptians found their way blocked by a large army. Surprisingly, neither Babylonian, Scythian, nor Mede, but instead under the command of Josiah, king of Judah. Since the heady days of Hezekiah's heroic defense of Jerusalem against the armies of Sennacherib, Judah had suffered under a succession of weak and idolatrous rulers. The first was Hezekiah's son, Manasseh who reinstituted pagan worship in the great temple and permitted Yahweh worship in other high places throughout the kingdom. During his particularly long 55-year reign, he remained a loyal vassal of Assyria and even provided support for Ashurbanipal's campaign against Egypt. His son Amun, supposedly named after the Egyptian god Amun, was unsurprisingly also a pagan, and apparently ramped up his offensive idolatry to such a degree that he was assassinated in 640 BC after ruling for only two years. Enter his eight-year-old son, Josiah. A decade into his rule, Josiah declared himself a reformer in the style of Hezekiah by giving the great temple a thorough undefiling, including, and I only wish I could make this stuff up, destroying the living quarters of all the male cult prostitutes. Yeah, you might want to do that. He also made an effort to compile early Hebrew scriptures and supposedly managed to return the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. Okay, so far, so good. When it comes right down to it, it's hard to get a handle on exactly why King Josiah decided to block Necho II's march to Haran. A few factors were likely at play. The first was Josiah's hatred of Assyria and strong desire not to see its remnants reinforced by the pharaoh's armies. The second was the possibility of a secret military alliance recently forged between Judah and Babylonia. The third, and possibly most important factor, was Josiah's belief that in the aftermath of Samtik's passing, Egypt would be weak. Even back in Hezekiah's time, the Judean king had denigrated Cushite Egypt as a broken reed. If that was true back then, then how could a mere Assyrian-installed puppet pharaoh leading a ragtag band of foreign mercenaries hope to overcome the armies of Yahweh on their own soil? Yeah, well, except that's pretty much exactly what happened. After a short and brutal conflict, the Judean army was defeated and King Josiah lay dead on the field, slain by Egyptian archers. With no time to capitalize upon his victory, Necho II merely pressed on northward, eventually joining up with Asher Ubalit at Carchemish, just west of the Euphrates. In 608 BC, the combined armies crossed the Euphrates, making Necho, incidentally, the first pharaoh to do so since Thutmose III, over 800 years earlier, and launched a joint assault to retake Haran from the Babylonians and Medes. 
I'm not going to sugarcoat this one. They failed. They failed spectacularly. They failed to such an extent that Asher Ublitz's name forever disappears from the history books. It wasn't exactly the end of Assyria, but you could certainly see it from there. Necho II survived the battle and retreated with his army back to Jerusalem. After Josiah's death, the Judeans had chosen his son, Jehoahaz, as their king. In a vengeful mood, Necho deposed Jehoahaz in favor of his older brother, Jehoiakim, and extorted almost a hundred tons of silver from the kingdom. Jehoahaz was carted off with Necho's army and would eventually die in exile in Egypt. After the second defeat at Haran, the last Egyptian Assyrian stronghold in Syria was the ancient city of Carchemish. Necho II soon returned there with his remaining forces and began challenging Nabopolassar's control over a number of key Syrian cities. The two armies repeatedly clashed over the next three years, during which control of Neo-Babylonian forces increasingly passed to the crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar II. When Nabopolassar died in 605 BC at the age of 53, Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon to be installed as king. His first action upon taking the throne was to gather his armies and lead them back northward in a massive assault against the stronghold of Carchemish. The city's defenses collapsed under the withering assault. In the battle's aftermath, the final Assyrian holdouts were captured and executed, and Assyria ceased to exist as a regional entity. The empire it had built, slowly, over centuries of ruthless conquest and oppression, passed virtually intact into the hands of the new Chaldean king. Unfortunately, to the Near Eastern population at large, this signal transition would be perceived as little more than a shift in power centers, while their day-to-day -day lives remained essentially unchanged. In fact, Herodotus would report over a century later, Assyria possesses a vast number of cities, whereof the most renowned and strongest at this time was Babylon, whither, after the fall of Nineveh, the seat of government had been removed. But for Necho II, the shift was seismic. Any realistic hopes of restoring Egyptian control over the Levant were buried at Carchemish. In the wake of their victory, Nebuchadnezzar's armies relentlessly pursued the pharaohs southward, through Hamath, then Judah, and finally all the way to the Egyptian frontier at Pelusium. The Chaldean king wasn't prepared to invade the southern kingdom, at least not yet, but he'd clearly made his point. Thereafter, Necho II would scale down his Levantine ambitions and instead, like his father, align Egypt's future with the growing power of the resurgent Greeks. Over the ten remaining years of his reign, Necho undertook a number of major efforts to strengthen Egyptian power, prestige, and military preparedness. To foster greater trade between the Mediterranean Sea and Indian Ocean, he initiated a project to cut a navigable canal from a branch of the Nile through to the Red Sea, an early precursor of the Suez Canal. He also used a steady influx of Greek migrants to help him develop Egypt's first real deep-sea navy, an action long deferred due to the innate Egyptian fear of the ocean and soon had warships operating along both the Mediterranean and Red Sea coasts. So far, so good, but get ready to have your mind totally blown. 
Around 600 BC, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, Necho II sent out an expedition of Phoenicians who sailed from the Red Sea entirely around the coast of Africa, returning through the Pillars of Hercules to the mouth of the Nile after a voyage of three years. If true, and there's a decent chance it may be, they performed a feat that would not be repeated for over 2,000 years. And that, my friends, is reason number one why the Phoenicians are seriously badass. But now back to our story. While the Babylonians and Medes had combined their forces and united their ruling families in order to destroy the Neo-Assyrian Empire, their paths diverged after the deed was accomplished. The two powers would never come into direct conflict, and generally kept to their respective spheres of influence, northern Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and the Zagros for the Medes, and everything else to Babylon. But aside from that, the priorities of their respective rulers, and the peoples they led, could not have been more different. Syaxares had come down from the Zagros Mountains first and foremost for revenge and plunder, and had received both in full measure. The loosely organized mountain tribes who followed him into battle had no interest in any larger geopolitical aims, and captured Assyrian cities and fortresses were left abandoned after they'd been plundered. The only city the Medes held onto, Haran, was likely considered a convenient jumping-off point for further raids into Anatolia. Nebuchadnezzar II, on the other hand, wanted nothing less than to establish the greatest and most powerful empire the world had ever known. And, just like Neo-Assyria, he knew that the key to imperial wealth, power, and sustainability was access to Mediterranean resources and trade. That was why Carchemish had to be taken, and Necho's forces rolled back to their homeland. For Babylon to endure, any fantasies of restoring a greater Egypt than the Levant must be nipped in the bud. Unfortunately for the Chaldean king, the Egyptians were not his only obstacle. If you've learned anything over the course of this podcast series, aside from a crazy assortment of king names, it's probably that the Levant was a notoriously difficult territory to govern. Most states of the region had likely slipped out of Assyrian control at the first signs of weakness, as early as the latter part of Ashurbanipal's reign, and were far from eager to return to the imperial fold. A year after the Battle of Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar returned to the region in a major show of force, and commanded tribute from Damascus, Sidon, Tyre, and Jerusalem. He also made an example of the one city that rose up in revolt, Ashkelon, by having it destroyed. For the local powers, there was no mistake. Life under Babylonian rule was starting to smell a lot like life under Neo-Assyria. For the next few years, the Chaldean king warred against the Scythians and Sumerians. Yes, the same tribes who'd helped him to capture Nineveh. Because rampaging nomadic warriors are great to have in the mix when you're trying to bring down an empire, but not so much when you're trying to govern one. In 601 BC, Neo-Babylonian forces approached the Egyptian frontier, where they fought a major battle against the pharaoh's armies. The outcome was inconclusive. Egypt managed to extend her border to Gaza, but Nebuchadnezzar had succeeded in reasserting Babylonian control over the rest of the Levant. In 599 BC, Chaldean forces warred against the Arabs of Kedar, 
In 597 BC, it was back to the Levant yet again, this time to deal with a rebellion in Judah. After the taking of Carchemish, the newly installed Judean king, Jehoiakim, had prudently switched his allegiance from Necho, who'd installed him, to Nebuchadnezzar. Then, in 598 BC, against the express wishes of his most prominent buzzkill prophet, Jeremiah, Jehoiakim decided to declare for Egypt again and stop paying tribute to Babylon. After all, Hezekiah had defied Assyria back in the day, and things had worked out okay for him, right? Can I get an amen? Anyone? Nebuchadnezzar's armies had hardly arrived at the gates of Jerusalem before the Judean king just up and died. Or was killed. It all gets a bit confusing. Surprisingly, throwing the dead king's body out over the wall was not enough to appease the Chaldeans. But, you know, nice try. With Neo-Babylonian forces now besieging the city, Jehoiakim's son, Jeconiah, was declared king. He was either 8 or 18 at the time. Again, confusing. But I guess 10 years probably doesn't make much of a difference when you're staring down the most powerful army in the Near East. It may not surprise you too much to hear that three months later, on March 16, 597 BC, Jerusalem fell to the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. In a fairly mild response from a Near Eastern conqueror, Nebuchadnezzar settled for hauling off Jeconiah, the rest of the royal family, and 3,000 other prominent citizens to Babylon, with the intention of assimilating them all into Babylonian society. In his place, he installed Jeconiah's uncle, the 21-year-old Zedekiah, as king of Judah, and tasked him with resuming the kingdom's regular tribute payments. Two years later, in 595 BC, the pharaoh Necho II of Egypt died, and was succeeded by his son, Samtik II, who would pack a lot of activity into his short six-year reign. In 592 BC, Samtik led Egyptian forces into Nubia, marching as far as the Third Cataract and sacking the Kushite capital of Napata. A few of his Greek and Carian mercenaries left some famous graffiti on the statue of Ramesses II at Abu Simbel, while the rest of the army spent their time looting temples, defacing the statues of Nubian kings, and removing inscriptions from local monuments. The Egyptian military foray prompted the Nubians to relocate their capital southward to Meroe, between the 5th and 6th cataracts of the Nile. The Moreau civilization they'd build there, beyond the reach of Egyptian interference, would eventually become a major ironworking center in tropical Africa, and would grow rich and powerful through trade as well as large local deposits of gold. The following year, in apparent coordination, Samtik II led Egyptian forces into the Levant, while King Zedekiah of Judah, you guessed it, declared independence from Babylonia. At this fresh provocation, Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have finally decided that minor acts of assimilation just weren't going to cut it. And maybe, just maybe, there was something to be said for the more straightforward Neo-Assyrian approach. In 589 BC, Neo-Babylonian forces again surrounded Jerusalem. This same year, Samtik unexpectedly died and was succeeded by his son, Apreus. 
The new pharaoh sent an army to break the siege of Jerusalem, but it was easily crushed by Neo-Babylonian forces, a demoralizing blow that led to mutiny in at least one Egyptian garrison. With the Egyptian defeat, the Judeans saw their hopes quickly fading. But perhaps anticipating a more severe outcome this time around, they also redoubled their efforts to hold the capital. The Bible records that during the siege, every worst woe befell the city, which drank the cup of God's fury to the dregs. In the end, Jerusalem managed to resist for 18 months before it finally fell to Nebuchadnezzar's armies. Zedekiah and his followers attempted escape, but were captured on the plains of Jericho. The Bible records that they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. The city itself was looted, burned, its walls broken, and Solomon's temple razed to the ground. Thousands of Hebrews were deported en masse to Babylon, while others fled to the relative safety of Egypt. Judah was converted into a Neo-Babylonian province, and Nebuchadnezzar installed a puppet governor along with a local military garrison to keep order. This was the famous Babylonian captivity of the Hebrews. It was also the primary reason that their later influential scriptures portrayed Babylon as a den of luxurious decadence and unnatural vice. In reality, Babylon was no more or less deserving of that reputation than any other major Near Eastern city of the age. Still, the whole affair was executed with a casual brutality that would have made the Neo-Assyrians proud, and once again put the region on notice that, in terms of reprisals for disobedience, the new boss had much in common with the old boss. For notoriously independent Phoenicia, this was very unwelcome news. The proximity of the Chaldean army had prompted Tyrian tribute to Nebuchadnezzar back in 604 BC, but by 585 BC, under their latest king, Ithobaal III, they had apparently decided that enough was enough, and entered into rebellion against Babylonia. Like I mentioned earlier, this was the last thing Nebuchadnezzar could afford. In response, the Chaldean king maintained a near 13-year siege of the city, one of the longest recorded in the ancient world. Eventually, in a very un-Assyrian move, a compromise was reached. Tyre was forced to formally accept Babylonian authority, the rebellious king was deposed, and a new puppet king named Baal III was placed on the Tyrian throne. On the upside, and in stark contrast to Ashkelon or Judah, the city was spared any further reprisals. By 572 BC, Nebuchadnezzar II was in full control of southern Mesopotamia, Syria, the Levant, northern Arabia, and parts of Anatolia. While he would continue to spar with Egypt during the remainder of his reign, the secure borders he'd established allowed him to devote time and energy to one of his chief priorities, the religious and cultural revival of southern Mesopotamia, and, in particular, the restoration of the ancient capital of Babylon to its former glory and beyond. 
Meanwhile, northern Mesopotamia, the former Assyrian heartland, was left war-ravaged and depopulated to fend for itself with the meager resources available. Farther north, Cyaxares, leader of the Medes, had also turned upon a former ally and engaged in a systematic conquest of the lands of Urartu. Between 600 and 585 BC, no less than three Urartian kings fell to Median arms. With the death of the last ruler, Rusa IV, in 585 BC, the Urartian kingdom, former rival of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, joined its old enemy in passing from the earth and into the realm of legend. During the last five years of this conflict, Cyaxares had also been contending with a new enemy in the west, the Anatolian kingdom of Lydia. A century before, King Gyges had been compelled to convert Lydia into a major military power in order to defend his kingdom against Sumerian raiders. Upon his death in battle, the throne passed to his son, Ardis II, who spent much of his long 30-year reign warring against the Ionian Greek cities of Miletus and Priene. His son and heir, Sadiates, who ruled during the collapse of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, also fought a 12-year war against Miletus. It was only through the inspired leadership of the city's tyrant, Thrasybulus, an ally of the Corinthian tyrant, Periander, that Miletus was able to preserve its independence in the face of near-constant Lydian aggression. The next Lydian king, Aliates, was gearing up to start another war against Miletus, man, they really did not like that place, when events in the east finally drew his attention. Aside from their other roles, Neo-Assyria and Urartu had always served as intervening buffer states between the peoples of the Zagros Mountains and Anatolia. With both entities destroyed, there was no longer anything preventing the Medes from seeking fresh conquests in the west. Taking his own armies east to meet them, King Aliates fought the first battle against Cyaxares around 590 BC. Five years of near-constant warfare followed, with neither side able to strike a decisive blow. On May 28, 585 BC, the Lydians and Medes fought a major battle along the Hollis River, the traditional boundary between Asia and Anatolia. As in most of their previous conflicts, the two armies were evenly matched, and neither Aliates nor Cyaxares could gain the advantage. Suddenly, the sky above the battlefield was darkened by a total solar eclipse, which seemed, to all parties, like a pretty good excuse to call it a day. In a surprise move, King Nebuchadnezzar II was summoned from Babylon to help broker a peace. I'm not sure he could be considered an impartial arbiter, since Cyaxares was, well, his father-in-law, and it also just helped him destroy the Neo-Assyrian Empire. But surprisingly, his proposed solution, establishing the Hollis River as their common frontier, met with agreement from both sides. Of course, the Chaldean king also wanted some minor payment for his services, and took it in the form of the Anatolian kingdom of Cilicia which he occupied and fortified as a buffer state, just in case things ever went sideways up north. Shortly after the battle, King Cyaxares of Media died, and was succeeded by his son, Astyages. 
Along with being Nebuchadnezzar's brother-in-law, you might know Astyages as the maternal grandfather of Cyrus the Great. So yes, the Persians are very much in the on-deck circle. And as part of the earlier peace treaty, Astyages had been married to Arianus, daughter of King Aliatus of Lydia, and sister of the future King Croesus, as in rich as. Yes, the names, they're all starting to sound a little more familiar. So let's leave things in a rare happy place this week, with everyone married to everyone else and no one trying to kill one another. Soon they'll all be trading snippy correspondence and demanding lavish gifts for their new palaces. Good times. Next episode, I want to focus on other aspects of the major civilizations of the early 6th century BC. I want to cover Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian renovations, the monumental construction projects of the 26th dynasty pharaohs, the spread of Zoroastrianism throughout media, the super-influential monetary innovations of the Lydians, and the equally super-influential philosophical innovations of their neighbors, the Ionian Greeks. I'd also like to bring us up to date with the Greek mainland, as well as with Rome and Carthage. With a little luck, hopefully I can touch on all of this next time on The Ancient World.